Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So if you've been following uh, some of the debate around Bill C-10, uh, the government's bill uh, ostensibly to update the Broadcasting Act, you should know that that debate is nearing an end. It appears as though the government is prepared to try to move on anyway and are moving now to shut down debate around Bill C-10. This whole conversation seems to have gone off the rails in, in a big way. And it comes down to some of the uh, specifics of the bill and, and specifically an amendment that was there to make it clear that you know this idea of modernizing the Broadcasting Act was in no way to drag users into the conversation and an exemption that specifically excluded and made it clear that this would exclude user-generated content. Once that amendment was removed, it opened the door to a whole new realm of this conversation that I don't think anybody was uh, anticipating. So, look, the communication around this from the government has has been terrible, which perhaps speaks to the fact that I I don't think they've been uh, upfront and transparent uh, about what it is they're trying or hoping to do. So... Is this really the time to be shutting down debate on this important legislation? Well, our next guest has been following all of this very closely. In fact, was called to testify on Bill C-10. Michael Geist is a professor of law at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. Much more to his website, michaelgeist.ca. Professor Geist, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, great. Thanks so much for having me. So why, why is debate coming to an end here? What's your sense of what's going on? Well, the government has decided that they've heard enough, and you know, it's pretty clear that the, this bill has sparked uh, an enormous amount of controversy, a lot of questions, and uh, members of parliament are, are asking more and more questions. You know, previously, this bill was sailing through the House and the House committee looking at it, and then as I think the public, engage, public engagement started to increase, as people started asking questions, certainly about the regulation of user-generated content, but I think also about just the incredibly broad scope of this legislation and the amount of power that's going to be provided to the CRTC, you started to see a lot more questions. The, the debates that took place in committee started taking longer and longer, and suddenly now the government has basically said they've heard enough. And, you know, the irony of a piece of legislation with really profound implications for freedom of expression to be subject to a government gag order on further debate is is truly something. It is. So where does do things stand then with the current version of the bill? Because that's been really tough for people to follow. This amendment that I alluded to at the outset, which really took this conversation in a strange direction. The government said that they were going to make it clear. They put something back in the bill to make it clear that user-generated content wasn't a part of this conversation, which they didn't really do. Um, you know, we've certainly left the door open, I think, in a lot of ways to that kind of content being regulated. So where does the bill stand as of now? Oh, that's a great question. And you know, the, that specific question that, that you just raised about the prospect of the 
of, of not being able to follow necessarily where the legislation is at, I think is exactly right. You know, one of the, as, as someone who has now spent far too much time, quite candidly, following these committee hearings, there is no public record of any of this. You know, they, it, it is on the public record. It's open. You can watch it. But to know exactly what is in the bill at any given moment, given these changes, is pretty much an impossibility. There is no record even of the amendments that are forthcoming. So the public is often very much kept in the dark on this. And what we'll wait for at some point in time, especially if they're able to move forward with this, with these, with this gag order, is that at some point in time the committee will basically just say, "Okay, here's the bill." Based on whatever amendments they were able to get in, they may now skip some of the other amendments altogether if forced to by virtue of this change. Uh, and in effect, that will be that. It's interesting, the rhetoric, too, that you made note of in, in your latest piece. It's easy enough to get people worked up about big tech. I mean, there are people on the right who uh, don't like big tech, people on the left who don't like big tech. And I think just average Canadians that yeah, are maybe a little suspicious of, uh, you know, these these tech giants like Facebook and Amazon and, and Google and, and Netflix. But, you know, it's easy enough for the government to, to sort of wrap itself in that. But this goes well beyond big tech, doesn't it? Oh, does it ever? I mean, and that's and that's really, I think, one of the, you know, the wake up calls for a lot of people as part of this. So that while the government rhetoric around this has always been or has long been, listen, this is just about dealing with big tech. Once you scratch under the hood a little bit or below the surface to see what the legislation actually involves, you see that their own department said, listen, this can cover everything from podcast apps to home workout videos to news websites, uh, just about anything that is in audio or video form online that's accessible, that has a bit of a Canadian audience, is fair game. And while the CRTC may ultimately decide to exempt some of those services, we don't yet know what the standards will be. The government hasn't set any standards. And so their starting point is to say it is all covered. And just, you know, the massive regulatory overreach that this bill envisions, if all you were really interested in was getting Netflix to kick in a bit, a bit of money to support Canadian content, I mean, it's just positively astonishing that the government's chosen to go in this direction. So we've heard a lot about this term discoverability, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that could be applied to all of these different apps and, and services that you refer to, this idea that these companies must promote certain content, and in many cases that would be user-generated content. What is the purpose, then, of, of discoverability? Well, to hear the government say it, this is fundamentally about trying to ensure that, uh, that Canadian content can be discovered on various sites. But while that may well make some amount of sense, you can at least make the argument that it makes some amount of sense if you're talking about a Netflix, although even there, I would argue that you know, the, the, it fundamentally misunderstands the medium, that there is just a difference between, say, a conventional broadcaster, a CTV or a global or one of these other networks that uh, in the past have put on Canadian content largely out of regulatory obligation and haven't done much to put it at prime time because they wanted to have the more lucrative U.S. shows there. If you're a Netflix, your goal is to get happy customers who will continue to resubscribe. And so your only incentive is to ensure that they see stuff that they want to continue to see so they keep subscribing. If that's Canadian content, then that's what you're going to show them. So 
I don't think it's even a great case with with respect to services like Netflix. But once you expand that, as the government purports to do, into the world of user-generated content, so that somehow it's the CRTC that's going to fiddle with the algorithms of the TikToks and Instagrams and YouTubes to say they want to make Canadian content more discoverable there, well, that's just something no other country in the world thinks is an appropriate thing to do. What are the free speech implications of this, though? Because, I mean, on the surface, it might seem that, well, you know, Canadian content is Canadian content, that, that all Canadians will sort of be tr- treated as equal in, somehow in this context. But I, I don't know that it works that way in practice. What do you see as the implications on that side? Right. I don't think it works that way in practice at all. I think it's in some ways it's actually the, the opposite. What it does is treat different content differently, not equally. And so if you take the position as a starting point that what the government is going to do is it's going to prioritize certain content, it is in effect also going to deprioritize some content. And so in doing so, that means some goes up, some goes down. And, you know, we've seen over the last week or two a growing number of digital-first creators, thousands of Canadian creators who are doing very well on services like a TikTok or a YouTube saying, you know what, we were never even asked to appear before the committee. We're, we're, we're enjoying great success on these platforms. The idea that the government is now going to step in and start to regulate what gets prioritized, well, we don't tick necessarily those conventional boxes. And so they're worried that they're going to find themselves deprioritized in favor of some of you know, the legacy providers that may not have had the same sort of success. You know, one, yet, one, yet another one of the ironies with this bill is that the very entities, the very creators that are succeeding on these platforms, they're the ones that ultimately are, are being targeted to say, hey, you, may de- you could be deprioritized because you don't tick the right boxes. They're the ones that are generating revenue on these sites. And yet along come some of these other players and say, hey, we want our share from these sites too, even though they may not be enjoying the same kind of success. So the Liberals have uh, moved to shut down debate on this bill, and it sounds like the Bloc Québécois is prepared to go along with this, maybe even the NDP. So does this appear to be a done deal, as far as you can tell? Not yet. So it did come up today, and it was a a source of much debate, very raucous debate. I must admit, I'm still working through it. I didn't have time to to view the entire thing during the House of Commons today. But it is fair to say there is significant opposition, uh, unsurprisingly from the Conservatives, but not only the Conservatives. The NDP were also actually opposed to this gag order. So they've been supportive of the legislation. They were not supportive of the gag order, and I think that's right. Well, I think, personally, I think they ought to be opposed to the bill, too. But on the issue of the gag order, I mean, you know, you, you've got to be careful if you're going to start picking and choosing which pieces of legislation you decide that you don't want to have debate anymore for, because the next time it might be, might be well one that you don't support, and suddenly you find that there isn't that kind of democratic debate. This really just does run so counter to what the government had long said that it, it stood for, that it's just wrong. And, you know, in this case, I think, I think the opposition parties are right to raise concerns, and they raised a whole host of concerns today during the House, and it's not clear, at least at this stage, that it's, that it's gone through. But, you know, obviously the government has said this is what they're planning to do, so I suppose stay tuned. Much more is mentioned, michaelgeist.ca. Dr. Geist, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Michael Geist, uh, law professor at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Laws, one of the leading experts in the country on this stuff, and and certainly in in no sense a a partisan in any way. So, yeah, I I think if you've got experts like uh, Dr. Geist and others throwing up all these red flags, it's worth paying attention to that.
And sure, yeah, look, as, as a broadcaster who works for a broadcaster, you know, there's a vested interest here. But, you know, and I think, unfortunately, this whole conversation has been tainted by, you know, the government just taking all of this in a really strange direction. So even if this bill does pass, I, I think, unfortunately, yeah, there's no shaking this controversy and the perception around Bill C-10 that that's that's baked in at this point. And this is all on the government. Well, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Friday afternoon. Much more still to get to here this afternoon, including more time for your calls at 403-974-8255. Um, certainly, there's been an important conversation happening this week across the country and really a, an, an extension of an ongoing conversation around the legacy of residential schools in particular and the broader question of are, are we moving forward on reconciliation and how do we gauge that, that progress? What is it that you know, success looks like on that front? So certainly, you know, with the discovery last week of these um, unmarked burial sites at the former residential school in Kamloops, I mean, it's it's once again shone a light on on a very dark and ugly part of of Canada's history and the horrors of of residential schools. So, yeah, I think there's a need to deal with that specifically in terms of finding these graves, having a full accounting of what happened to these children. You know, in terms of holding people accountable, obviously these are decisions that go back uh, many years, many generations. Are there other ways of holding those people accountable? Certainly there's been a lot of debate around, you know, some of Canada's founding fathers and those who played a direct role in the establishment of residential schools. And how do we reckon with that? John A. Macdonald in particular, there's been a lot of debate around. So there, there, there's a lot to this this conversation. I want to get some perspective here on, on all of this, and I, I think our next guest has, has a lot of interesting things to say about these important issues. Uh, her name is Melissa Embarkey, policy analyst and outreach coordinator of the McDonald laurier Institute, a First Nations activist, also a consultant on natural resource projects in Western Canada, and the important issue of building partnerships between industry and Indigenous communities. She joins us on the line here this afternoon. Melissa, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You know, as we reflect on, on the last seven days and, you know, all the different conversations and, and debates that have been taking place, what, what do you make of, of all of it so far, first of all? Well, first of all, um, I just I want to send, um, you know, my sincere condolences to every community um, because this isn't going to be the first time it's going to be brought to light. There's going to be more communities mm -hmm. that are going to have similar findings and it, 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 in a sense, it brings up unhealed wounds and it brings up a part of their history that they felt wasn't acknowledged. So I'd like to just send that love and that warmth out to them um, while they're dealing with this. And secondly, um, I think we're having the wrong conversations about this. Um, we're looking to blame someone. We're looking to blame whoever we could and i don't think those are conversations that are productive um in helping these communities i don't think like coming from a grassroots perspective it's not going to change anything that's going on today in terms of the issues that we're facing and some of these issues could include poverty addictions even suicides like talking about you know, taking down a statue isn't going to change any of that. And mm -hmm. I think we need to start having different conversations about this. 
and really looking at what we can do as a collective to move forward in a better way and to move forward to reconciliation instead of moving away from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, there's there's a link between the past and the present. And, you know, we need to understand the, the past to understand the present. But in terms of, yes, going back in, in the past and, and pointing fingers at specific individuals, I, I mean, we can do that in a historical context, I suppose. But as you say, does that really address the problems in the here and now? It, it doesn't. Um, the only thing it's going to do is it's going to cause a divide. Um, you know, the minute we start pointing a finger, someone's going to point one back at us. So that's not really getting the conversations happening that need to be happening. Um, and I, I think now is a time to just reflect on what was done um, and, and not specifically looking at who to blame, but listening to the survivor stories and listening to, you know, maybe what would have helped them along the way. You know, did it have the change, you know, have to take this long. The last school was closed in 97. That's almost 30 years ago. You know, what What have we done since that have, you know, promoted healthy communities? And coming from a small community, I can say that not a whole lot was done since I left. Not a whole lot was being done when I lived on a reserve. And the issues that we had when I was younger are still the same issues that we're facing today. So we need to try and come up with solutions. And I'm hoping I can facilitate some of those conversations among non-Indigenous people and just bring awareness to what's happening today, not specifically what happened in the past, but let's let's look at today and let's move forward and let's start having some productive conversations. Yeah, which I think we need to. And I, I, I do agree. And I, I, my concern is that part of the conversation around historical figures or, you know, statues or names on buildings is that we, we sort of look at that as the finish line, that there we go. We, we took down a statue. We changed the name of that. Problem solved, right? Does, can it be an obstacle in some ways to, to moving forward on some of these more pressing and, and difficult conversations? If, if tearing down a statue was going to fix our issues, um, you know, it would have worked years ago. It would have worked a century ago. It's That's not the discussion we should be having. And it's not the solution to our problems either. So I think, I think we have to find a balance, you know, like we have to find a balance between acknowledging the past as well as moving forward. So if we can have those conversations that bring a balance of both, then we are going to take a different direction. And that's the direction that I want to take. Like I want to see our communities prosper and I want to see people move past uh, some of these traumas and to be able to be, you know, speaking about it and to be able to share their stories because not many can. And the ones who do um, often feel like, you know, maybe they're the only one out there. So we need, if we can get more people having and sharing these their stories, I mean, the more we're going to understand. And this is, I think, what we want. Like, we want people to understand where we came from and how we got here today. And if we can, you know, bring everyone together on this and say, okay, this is how we think we can move forward and, and get, you know, community, uh, I don't want to say approval, but just to get community support, I mean, that would be fantastic. Do you think, though, that, that in terms of, of healing, 
that uh, a more thorough accounting of the residential schools and finding these burial sites and you know naming these children is 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 that important in in healing and moving forward it's very important um in my community in saskatchewan I think our number was up to 34 um, when they were doing the ground scans. Um, Creating a memorial site for them would be a start. And, you know, just acknowledging that these children were once alive and, and this is the proper burial that we're giving them now. From our perspective, it would put closure and it would give those, like it would, it would commemorate them. It would create, you know, a sense of healing, like we've done what we could as a community to honor these children. And moving forward, I think every community is going to feel the same, like they want to have a place for the for these children and for people to visit and to pay respect to them. And I think every person out there would want to see that for their loved ones. Which sounds like it, it's, that, I mean, that's a part of reconciliation, right? Um, as As we continue to move forward. But I mean, what, what does reconciliation represent to you? Reconciliation is bringing everybody together um, because that's the only way that you can have it. You can't have reconciliation from one side and have another side pushing against it. So the minute that we bring others into this into this discussion, you know, the more ideas that are going to be generated um, and just kind of going on to our water issue, you know, like maybe there's a county that that would have a recommendation for us to say, okay, this is how you can fix your water issue. So it's just opening up those discussions on the different things that we're facing. Um, and that's what true reconciliation is. I think working together, having, you know, positive, productive conversations, like this is the only way that we'll ever work together. There are some big challenges, as you've alluded to, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to addiction, mental health, when it comes to infrastructure, clean water, for example. And these these challenges can seem very daunting. Um, but where do, where do we need to begin here? I mean, we're not going to solve everything overnight, um, you know, and, and we're not going to have a one solution fits all for every one of our issues. But I think if we start addressing them piece by piece and, and just engaging the communities and asking them, what is your number one priority and how can we work on that? Then we'll get a feel for what each area needs. I mean, it's definitely going to differ from province to province, but at least we're asking the question on what is needed. What is your number one priority? If you can fix something today, what would that be? When it comes to economic opportunity, and I know that that's a big focus for you in, you know, in finding and expanding of those opportunities. Are are we seeing progress on on that side? I'm going to say we were seeing progress. Um, You know, there was a time where, you know, we were part of the natural resource sector. We were welcoming um, economic development into our communities. You know, we had entrepreneurs that were starting and building businesses. And this is something that everyone wants to see. But as of lately, you know, we're starting to see policies that are affecting this and actually in some instances preventing it. So you're actually kind of 
stalling a community from moving forward um, because it's it's more than just a job you know like you're providing for your families you're you know you're feeling like you're proud of what you're doing you're doing things for your community that maybe you wouldn't have done before so it's actually hindering um, progress in some because of policies that are coming into play so Overall, like we don't know what the long-term effect is going to be, you know. Mm. So now we're going to start taking jobs. We're going to start taking businesses. How is that going to look? Are we going to move back 10, 20, 30 years? Like I, we just don't know what that's going to, how that's all going to play out going forward. We got to leave it there. Uh, but I really appreciate uh, the, the perspective on all of this and, and the conversation here today, Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Melissa Embarkey, as mentioned, a First Nations activist uh, involved in uh, consulting and, and operations analysis on natural resource projects in Western Canada, finding and building those those partnerships. Also working as a policy analyst and outreach coordinator at the McDonald laurier Institute. Where do things stand with Alberta's economic recovery? Certainly there's no economic recovery until we can get out of this pandemic. And I think, hopefully, we're, we're on the way to that. But Alberta has been hard hit, not just by the pandemic, obviously, but by other factors. The oil and gas industry uh, has clearly uh, had a rough year, or certainly a rough 2020, in addition to the preceding years. And we were starting to see a bounce back in terms of commodity prices, and, and hopefully that bodes well as uh, economic recovery really gets going in the second half of this year. The latest jobless numbers are maybe a little discouraging. Overall, Canada lost about 68,000 jobs, which is a lot more than economists were expecting. And employment rate is at uh, 8.2%. So, you know, certainly we saw for the most part across the country in the early part of this year, uh, a return to restrictions as we dealt with uh, a third wave. Now, in Alberta, unemployment uh, for May is more or less flat which i don't know maybe in the context uh you know maybe that's that's a positive obviously we want to see things going in the right direction uh joining us to talk a bit more about uh these latest numbers and uh, where things stand with hopefully alberta turning an economic corner here uh very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon uh mike holden who's with the uh, business council of alberta they've got uh, a new report out uh, on some of these numbers today mike is their uh, vice president of policy and uh, chief economist mike great to have you with us here this afternoon welcome to the program thank you so businesscouncilab.com people want to read a little bit more for themselves so you know just big picture mike where, where's your sense of uh, where we're at as we come up on the halfway point here of uh, 2021 well you know like you said at the outset this um this the um May jobs numbers really weren't all that exciting. We saw like a very small decline of about a thousand jobs in the province. Um, but you know, this is really a result of the um, increased stringency with the lockdown measures that we saw come in in April and May. And so we basically just held steady. Uh, but I think that turning the corner, uh, we can expect a much stronger performance in June. And I think that as the second half of the year rolls out, as vaccines continue, um, we're going to see uh, we're going to see some increases. Yeah, and I think that that's certainly the hope. I mean, it feels like Alberta's, though, a little bit further back than other provinces. I mean, when, when we look at uh, where things are at, it seems as though other provinces are, are closer to those pre-pandemic uh, levels of economic activity. So is Alberta just starting from further back or has Alberta been you know, disproportionately affected by a, a lot of these other factors? 
Yeah, the pro- yeah, we've been disproportionately affected, um, especially in the early months of the pandemic, because uh, not only did we have the pandemic going on here, but at the same time, there were, uh, you know, the, the brief period of negative oil prices, which really uh, took the wind out of the sails of the Alberta economy. And then on top of that, you know, we hadn't really been in a strong economic position for five years previously. And so, you know, we were, in, in a sense, Alberta was hit twice while they were already reeling. And that's, uh, and that's the situation we started in. Since then, you know, it's, it's actually improved not too badly. Like, if you look at the numbers, we're not doing significantly worse than, than most other provinces right now. We're roughly in line with the national average. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of positive momentum in areas outside of these industries that we see are being directly affected by COVID. And so, uh, you know, our vaccine schedule, our vaccine rollout has been pretty good so far. And, uh, you know, we're you know, pushing 60, 65% of people with the first dose. And once we start seeing this reopening in June, um, the areas where we do see weakness are going to be the ones to recover. And, uh, and, that's when, um, and that's when I think we can start uh, looking forward to more growth. Well, it's interesting. It's, you know, we can drill down on these numbers and we can sort of go sector by sector. And because it's it's a different picture, I think, depending on what industry and what sector you're looking at. I mean, we obviously even see differences in, in these numbers between men and women. So what, what are the areas of the economy that are faring relatively well right now? Well, yeah, yeah, that's actually a really interesting point, because the areas that are doing poorly to start there are really these front-facing industries, uh, accommodation, food services, your bars and restaurants and hotels, and personal services, that, you know, hairdressers that have been uh, shut down in the last couple of months and really throughout this pandemic for the most part. And if you subtract those out, the rest of the Alberta economy is actually not doing too badly. And so in the last couple of months, this last month, the numbers that got released today, especially, you know, we saw about 10,000 jobs created in, in good service, in goods producing industries, in construction and in, um, in resource industries. So this is forestry, oil and gas and mining. And then we've seen, you know, professional services like sort of white collar jobs have been doing pretty well through this entire time. And uh, so it's really just a very isolated pocket of weakness that we're seeing so far in you know, these bars, restaurants and, uh, and personal services. And those are the industries that happen to employ mostly women. And the ones that I mentioned before that are growing are the ones that tend to employ mostly men. And so that's one of the factors that's driving this kind of gender imbalance in, uh, in how um, COVID has affected Albertans so far. Yeah. Well, and I think it's it's worth understanding that. But does it does it matter from a policy perspective in terms of what governments can be doing at this point to uh, address areas of weakness in the economy or try to spur further economic growth and job growth? Well, you know, the most important thing we can do really is is have um, Albertans continue to go out and, and get vaccinated. Yeah. And the more we, we've seen cases have been has been falling dramatically over time uh, over the last couple of months or month or so. And, uh, you know, if that pace continues and if those vaccine rates continue, then we will get back, um, you know, back to normal quickly. On the policy side, I mean, there's one of the major issues that a lot of um, think tanks and organizations are looking at is access to childcare and the extent to which that's preventing women from going into the workforce. And so that's an issue that, uh, you know, we we're concerned about because, you know, if you don't, if women aren't fully involved in the workforce, then that kind of ties one hand behind the Alberta economy's back. And so we do want people back to work. And so that's, Making sure that that Albertans who want to work are able to work is um, is key to this recovery, and and making sure we have access to childcare has to be one of those components. We look at oil and gas in particular, and that's certainly a big part of the economic engine in Alberta. We obviously seen a rebound in commodity prices. You know, there's some some hope or some optimism that you know this will be a summer of demand. 
obviously the industry has been through a lot in recent years and you know we, we might not see the same kind of job recovery as as we've seen in the past what, what's your sense of whether things are improving in the oil and gas sector and how that might impact uh, you know job growth and economic growth in alberta well, you know, they're, they're certainly improving from a price standpoint. And so, but, but we're, you know, a lot of these businesses are dealing, we're dealing with a, an extremely poor and challenging 2020. And so companies that lost a lot of money are, are, you know, they're, they're doing better now, but they're really just recouping the losses that they had in, in, in last year. And so, you know, we're not, we're not likely to see a huge jobs boom come out of this. We're not going to, we were unlikely to see a huge number of new capital projects announced. Um, there's going to be a lot of maintenance and expenditure activity on the, um, on the repair and maintenance side and, uh, and the, and improved profitability, like I said, but it's not going to usher in the kind of oil boom that we saw like in the early 2010s. Well, back to the point about vaccines. And as you say, I mean, you know, we, we seem to be in a much better position now. I know there was uh, a lot of concern earlier in the year in terms of Canada's position. But, you know, is it, is it something that the government needs to to view almost like a, a, an economic strategy? I mean, I, I think we're going to probably get to a point in the next couple of months where we're trying to encourage demand and trying to find those who are maybe still on the fence or procrastinating. But is it important for the government to to make that link between vaccination rates and the economy? Oh, it's critically important. And I think they have done that to some degree. I mean, I think that a lot of this, this three-stage reopening plan that the government has announced that's, you know, contingent upon the province reaching certain thresholds for vaccines, you know, that, that itself is a bit of a carrot to help uh, help people go out and, and hopefully get vaccinated. You know, access to vaccines and making sure that people can get them. And, you know, part of that is a bit of a, a supply constraint. But there are there are people on the fence about this. And I think that the more that can be done to encourage Albertans to get vaccinated, get your first dose, and once you have that, you know, book your second dose as soon as you're as soon as you're allowed to do so. And uh, you know, the more people that get that second dose, especially, uh, this is actually one of the potential concerns with a reopening plan like this: is you want to make you don't want to dissuade people from getting that second dose because that is also critically important to making sure these cases stay down. But uh, yeah, like I said, that you know, if you were to pick one economic recovery strategy that's going to trump all the others it's absolutely going to be getting your vaccines absolutely much more as mentioned businesscouncilab.com mike thanks so much for joining us here today thank you much appreciate him uh that is mike holden uh with the business council of alberta uh, vp of policy and uh, chief economist so uh, a bit of a snapshot of where things are at looking at the may jobless numbers and uh, maybe not surprisingly right the response to the third wave in april and may has had a spillover effect into what we see in the May jobless numbers. But when we look overall big picture, yeah, Alberta is kind of playing catch-up still with the other provinces, even compared to Saskatchewan and how close we are versus how close they are to you know, pre-COVID levels of activity. Now, this week comes to a close with some controversy swirling around that. You know, here's the thing. I mean, the premier was on a bit of a political role lately. COVID cases have come way down. The vaccine rollout is speeding way up. We've got a very optimistic and ambitious reopening plan that the premier has launched. I think it's kind of muted those uh, in his caucus or now formally in his caucus uh, who have been very concerned about uh, the pace of reopening. And now we have this. Interestingly, those two now former UCP MLAs, MLAs, Yesterday, calling on the premier to resign, Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes. Angela Pitt, who's still in the UCP caucus, but has certainly been one of those critical of the government, uh, put a post on social media saying that I wasn't a part of this event. 
It says, looking at those photos, it seems clear to me that several health restrictions were violated. Much of the public concern about this incident has been about the hypocrisy of senior officials breaking their own rules. Interestingly as well, today in court, AHS managed to get an injunction against another rodeo protest that was set to happen this weekend. But those who were organizing the event actually made the argument in court that the premier is not following the rules, so why should we? And that's in addition, obviously, to the sort of reaction we've received and, and maybe it's kind of predictable from the NDP. Uh, so given that, that perception of hypocrisy, given the fact that the uh, notorious Sky Palace is involved here, how much of a political problem is this for the premier? Lauren Gunter had a really interesting column on this. It's up at edmontonsun.com today and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Lauren, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. Well, yeah, certainly the premier is, is digging in his heels, and, and maybe that's his, his kind of political instinct. But how, how big a problem is this for him, you think? Well, I don't think it's huge. I, I would be surprised if it survives the weekend. Uh, I, I don't think that this is anywhere near the size of a problem as having MLAs and staffers take off uh, for Mexico, Arizona, California, Hawaii, uh, while the rest of us were hunkered down. Um, just having uh, Christmas with our own households rather than getting together with our families. I, I don't think it's, it's going to turn out to be anywhere near as big as that. Uh, I saw several streeters yesterday of people who said, oh, I, I don't like the UCP. I'm not a UCP supporter, but I am just, right. just nitpicking. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think we're, we all sense that we're near the end of this. We all sense that once you've been vaccinated with one dose, very unlikely you're going to get sick. It's even more unlikely you're going to make somebody else sick. Right. And so, you know, the distancing is, is a precaution till the end of the month. But, uh, but yeah, I, I just, I just don't, I mean, maybe I'm all wet on that, but I just don't have the <laughs> feeling that Albertans have the energy left to be really as, as, uh, as excited and angry about this as the NDP. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, look, there, there are those, I think, who, who look at this gathering and say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. It's mm-hmm. it's not safe. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and, and I think they're in the minority. I, I don't think most yeah. people, reasonable people would look at this gathering and see anything problematic with it. It's just that disconnect that do the rules I, yeah. prevent all of yeah. us from doing what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and you do lose the moral authority to ask people to put up with this for another three to four weeks when you aren't adhering strictly to the rules. Now, I think there were an awful lot of Albertans who had events like that one in the photo over the long weekend. They sat around in their backyard with people they haven't seen in, in 14, 15 months. Uh, and the neighbors over, they had some, some family over. Uh, wasn't all one or two households. There might have been three or four households. Uh, you know, were they distant? Yeah, mostly they were distant. It's just like those guys, you know, they... Were they distant? Yeah, they're not real far apart. But we also know that the, the spread of this disease outside is negligible. I mean, for a long, long time, world health authorities and, and health authorities in the states and Canada were saying, you know, under 10% of this is, is, is communicated outdoors. Yeah, and it turns out it's about one-tenth of 1% one outdoors. So, you know, were, were, were they engaging in behavior that was likely to make the pandemic worse and therefore keep us all in lockdown longer? No. No, they weren't. Should they have been a little bit smarter about this? Absolutely. But I was more bothered by the fact that they're using the Sky Palace. 
uh, than I was that they were, you know, not strictly speaking two hockey or a hockey sticks distance apart. Yeah. Now, it, it certainly did give some oxygen to some of the Premier's critics on the right. We had Todd <laughs> Lowen and Drew Barnes, uh, you know, calling on the Premier to resign. Some interesting comments from, from this uh, Angela Pitt, who seems sympathetic to those two, but remains in caucus for now. I think, you know, otherwise it had seemed as though this, this rebellion that we talked about before had really fizzled out. Yeah. Has the Premier handed them a, a bit of a gift, or are they just trying to cling to anything at this point? No, they're, they're trying to get some revenge. Um, I don't understand how Pitt is still in the caucus. Even before Barnes and Lowen were uh, tossed out, she had she had dared the premier to kick her out of caucus on social media. Uh, that in itself should have been enough to get her punted. And now she's you know mousing off again. It, it, at the time, she was the most vocal about hating the lockdowns and lockdowns are wrong and the premier's. Out of out of touch. She, her community, Airdrie East, had one of the highest infection rates in the in the province. Um, so you know, I don't, she just seems to me like a loose cannon. But um, uh, I think that this just gives these three uh, another day to uh, get some media attention. And I I don't sense that, you know, the, the big thing for Kenny would be is if a, if a third party starts up another party on the right, that would be uh, potentially disastrous. Uh, I don't get the feeling that that's happening. And I don't get the feeling that there are any other members of caucus who are going to follow Barnes and Lowen out the door. Yeah. So, no, I, 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 I think this is survivable. And as I said, I think this probably goes away by Monday. Because otherwise, as I said at the outset, I mean, it feels though, you know, the premier's political fortunes have, have started to turn. I mean, especially yep. with the announcement of, of the reopening plan. Is, is that your sense, too? Yep. And, and the announcement that, you know, everybody who's had one dose can now, very soon anyway, uh, start signing up for a second dose. And, you know, once we've all got second doses, they're or once 60 or 70% of people have second doses, it really doesn't matter much. You're not going to have more lockdowns. I guess if you had a really serious mutation come out of some place uh, that we hadn't allowed for and that the vaccines didn't work on, you'd have some problems. But but by and large, it, it, people just I just get the sense from people that they know this is coming to an end. It's a manageable amount of time to wait. Uh, and by July 1... We'll probably be having mask burning parties instead of fireworks. <laughs> yeah. And what of, what about the Sky Palace? I mean, you know, and, and look, in fairness to Rachel Notley, she stayed the hell away yep. from it. Um, you know, Premier Kenny obviously doesn't live there. He's been a little more comfortable using it. Obviously, we we got a little more distance between, you know, where we are now and the, the whole Allison Redford scandal. But yep. I mean, what do we do with this place? Well, I, I think what they've done with it is okay they've turned it into offices rather than a personal suite uh, but it probably would be smart to turn it into uh, a reception area or it's on the top of a building that has quite a nice view maybe expand the windows a little bit and leave it as a public space people can go up yeah. and take a look at the legislature and the river valley and everything like that. it would be best if the government didn't use it i understand that Kenny is currently using one of the offices there as his own office, while his office in the legislature is reno- the, the legislature is undergoing a major renovation at the moment because it's an old sandstone building 
uh, that no one really imagined would last for a hundred years and now has to be made to last for another hundred. So um, it, it, it's not like they're making new elaborate offices for the premier and the ministers. They're just doing some, some uh, maintenance work to keep the place standing. Uh, but while that's happening, he's using an office in what was the Sky Palace. Um, but that's different than, you know, rolling out the tables and draping them with linen and okay. putting out fancy Italian water and having a, a server bring them dinner, you know, bring him and some ministers to dinner. I, I just think that that's bad optics. Yeah, I think so. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. In the meantime, as mentioned, your piece is up today at edmontonsun.com. A look at this whole situation. Lauren, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here. Hey, you bet. Anytime. All the best. Uh, Lauren Gunter is a columnist uh, for Post Media for the Edmonton Sun, edmontonsun.com. So he's got a good take on this. I mean, yeah, there, there's some bad optics here. Uh, but Lauren's more in the camp that this will probably blow over. Right? The scandal's not the gathering. To me, the scandal's the hypocrisy. But to what extent... Is, is there hypocrisy? I mean, you know, the distancing measures are supposed to be adhered to. In addition, according to the province's rules, you're uh, it's strongly encouraged to keep any outdoor gatherings limited to people from two households. There's not supposed to be any indoor component, you know, people going in and out or, you know, going in for whatever reason. So with those three things in mind, no, the, the rules weren't strictly followed. And it would be easy enough for the premier to just acknowledge that. Right? His instinct is to, to dig in his heels and, and go on the defensive no matter what. So that's where there's been some concern here. It's not that the gathering was bad. It's just that we're being told that if we all were to do the same thing, that that would be bad. So it would be helpful, I think, for the province to at least clarify that, look, here's, here's what we intend by the rules. And that if any of you go out this weekend and do what we did this past Tuesday night, there's no problem. You don't need to worry that you're violating the rules. Absolutely, we want people gathering outdoors. And people clearly are. And that's a good thing. So it, it should never be one set of rules for political leaders and another set of rules for all of us. And, and I think they should take heed of that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.